0: Welcome to season three of the Bible for My Ordinary Life podcast. My name is Alicia Parker and I'll be your host. Are you interested in what the Bible really means? Are wondering how it's relevant to life today? If so, this podcast is for you. In this season, we are going back to where it all begins, the book of Genesis. No matter what your age or your background or your experience is with the Bible, I believe you can find something fresh and meaningful every time you study it. Hi, my name's Ariana. The Bible is for everyone. (laughs) Thanks, Ariana. All right, friends, let's get started. Hi there, friends. Thanks for being here today. I'm excited about today's episode, mostly because I get to say, I don't know, a lot. (laughs) And I'm mostly kidding about that. But let me say that today's section of Genesis is a fun one. Because there's quite a bit of uncertainty about what the original intent was. And as much as I love studying the Bible and digging into it for answers, I'm also equally content to study the Bible and realize I don't have all the answers to my questions. There is some element of mystery, and I'm okay with that. Because if my mind was big enough to understand God fully, then honestly, He wouldn't be big enough to be God. So sometimes coming across something that seems hard to fully understand reminds me of just how great the God I love and serve is. Now we're starting chapter 6 of Genesis, and this is the beginning of Noah's story. I have such fond memories of learning about Noah in Sunday school as a child. It's one of my earliest Bible story memories, so it's like a foundational anchor for me. And for my personal story of faith. But the author of Genesis is intentionally weaving together some important themes at this point that we have to keep in mind. Now, if you've been tuning in to the previous episodes, you know that God has promised an heir would come. The heir, also called a seed, was promised to crush the head of the serpent, the one who had caused the domino effect of temptation and sin and the curse. So Genesis four was all about Cain's descendants and no seed was found there. Genesis five is a full genealogy of Seth's descendants, and it ends with Noah and the proclamation by his father Lamech that Noah will bring comfort from the toil of working the cursed ground. We start then with chapter six. And the author is doing a bit of a summary about the setting in which we find Noah's story. But this setting is what has caused quite a bit of confusion and disagreements over the years. Now, I'm going to read from the book called A New Old Testament for Readers, Scholars, and Translators by Samuel L. Bray and John F. Hobbins. I really enjoy this translation and appreciate the care in which the authors have attended to the original meeting. Okay, here goes. And it happened, as man first multiplied over the face of the ground, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were good, and they took for their wives whomever they chose. But the Lord said, My spirit shall not remain strong in man forever, insomuch as he is also flesh. Let his days be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, as well as later, as the sons of God used to go in to the daughters of men who would bear sons to them. Those were the mighty men of old, the men of name. Now, in these four verses, we have quite a bit of information that we have to decipher. Let's start with the timing. It says, As it happened, as man first multiplied over the face of the ground. Now, you might remember from earlier podcasts I did, but if not, here's a quick Hebrew language review. The word for man in Hebrew is Adam, and the word for ground is Adama. So there is a definite connection when the author says, Adam first multiplied over the face of the Adama. The author is telling us that the human population has taken off, and some scholars think that by the time Noah is born, there could have been close to a million people on earth. And here's my first, but not my only, I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if the earth was well populated and that, that calculation was indeed correct. People lived hundreds of years, And with the unpolluted genetics, a fairly pristine earth and a hydrostatic water canopy over the earth, well, it's quite possible that women could have had many, many children in their lifetime who then also multiplied for many generations. All we really know is that we're setting the time frame as lots of people have been born and humans are multiplying. And then we get introduced to two specifically named types of people, the sons of God and the daughters of men. Now, the term daughters of men isn't too hard to decipher. It seems pretty straightforward that these are girls who were born by men fathering them. Simple enough. But sons of God is a bit trickier. Now, I read a lot about this, and there are basically two schools of thought with the third option having something to do with aliens and I'm not even going to go there. So sons of God is used in only one other place in the Old Testament and it's in Job where the term is used to describe angels. So for many years people believed that this was referring to fallen angels who came to earth and impregnated human women. Now in the New Testament, Sons of God is a term used to describe humans who are believers in Jesus. So some scholars think that this was actually referring to Seth's line, the godly men we just saw in chapter 5, who maybe weren't being so godly at this point in chapter 6. Some commentators still refer to these as fallen angels, whereas others argue that the Bible specifically teaches that angels cannot marry or procreate, so it cannot be angels. Now, it seems to me a little bit more likely that the Sons of God refers to Seth's line. And I say that because it's more consistent with the text. The text has not mentioned angels. It does not further talk about angels, whether fallen or not. But we've just read a whole chapter on Seth's line, where we learn that his descendants were faithful to their relationship with God. And we're about to talk about Noah, Noah and the evilness that's on earth. So I think it's more plausible that the sons of God were indeed human men from Seth's line, but there's a lot of debate on this. So again, I don't know for certain what the author truly meant, but I'm gonna stick with what I think most closely aligns with the themes in the story. What we see is a turning point here though. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were good and they took. Now does the phrase saw that it was good and took ring a bell? It should. It's the exact same thing that we read about with Eve in the garden. When she was tempted by the serpent to eat the fruit, it says in Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the tree produced fruit that was good for food, and then says she took. It's the same pattern. And unfortunately, it's the same outcome. This isn't going to end well. And remember the overarching storyline? What are we looking for? We're looking for a promised seed. So at this point, we've returned to the pattern of seeing and taking that started this whole mess of sin and no seed yet. So that brings us to verse 3, which says, but the Lord said, My spirit shall not remain strong in man forever. Insomuch as he is also flesh, let his days be a hundred and twenty years. This is also another verse that can cause some confusion. God makes a statement that can be interpreted two different ways. The first thing that comes to mind is that God is limiting the lifespan of mankind. Let his days be a hundred and twenty years. And indeed, after the flood, people's lifespans are significantly reduced. Prior to the flood, we see in scripture that people lived several hundred years, but after the flood, that tapers off quite quickly. So it could mean that God will start to limit lifespans, but it's not consistent with actual lifespans after the flood. There are a few important people in the Old Testament after the flood that live well beyond 120 years. Abraham lived 175 years, Jacob lived 147 years. So while this could be the case, and perhaps God gradually reduced the human lifespan to 120, there's another interpretation. And that was that it would be 120 years from this statement until the flood. I'll read the verse again and think about it from this perspective. My spirit shall not remain strong in man forever, insomuch as he is flesh. Let his days be 120. 20 years so we've got the sons of god seeing and taking wives indicating that they're falling into patterns of sin and god says my spirit will not remain strong in man forever in so much as he is also flesh god could be declaring that sin draws us away from him and his spirit isn't strong in us because of our sin therefore he starts a timeline of 120 years before he eliminates mankind. So those are the two schools of thought. And guess what? I don't know. I don't know which one is exactly what the author intended. I don't know which one is exactly what the author intended, but either way, I know the story doesn't end there. Let's keep reading. Verse four brings up another debatable concept. Many Bible verses will use the term Nephilim in this verse, which is called a transliteration. It's when you find a word in a language that has no equivalent, or perhaps you don't know what it means in your language, so you just pronounce it like it would be spelled and said in its native language. So the word Nephilim is just that. It's an English word that we derive from the Hebrew spelling. And there are all kinds of ways that this has been explained. Some people think it's from the root word that means fallen. And so they take this to mean fallen ones or fallen angels. So people think that this... Other people think this means giants. So they translate the word giant and they don't use the word Nephilim. In either case, the author simply makes a statement that these people are on the earth at this time. These opening verses, remember... They're setting the scene for Noah's story. And you have to think of Genesis like a telescope. We are looking way into the distant past. and When you do that through a telescope, your field of view is really limited. So an ancient reader of this might've understood this context better than we would because their field of view is closer and would be larger. they might have some idea of exactly what nephilim were and why this was mentioned here and the author goes on to describe a bit more about this he says the nephilim were on the earth during this time when the sons of god would procreate with the daughters of men and these were the mighty men of ancient times now when i look at the opening verses of chapter 6 i'll be honest there's a lot i'm not sure of in terms of how exactly to explain these but again I'm okay with that. I don't think any of these interpretations are so critically important that they make a difference in understanding the big picture. The big picture is that there is a promised seed, one who will come and defeat the serpent, one who will redeem us from this curse. And whether the sons of God are fallen angels or humans from Seth line, and who the Nephilim are, those details don't change the fact that the promised seed will indeed come. We have the advantage of knowing it's Jesus. But as we study the lives of these Old Testament characters, we can learn a lot about who God is and our relationship to him. And that's the main point to keep in mind. So with that said, let's go forward and look at verses five through eight. And the Lord saw That the evil of man was great on the earth, and every imagining of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all day long. And the Lord was aggrieved that he had made man on the earth, and in his heart he sorrowed. And the Lord said, I will wipe man whom I created from the face of the ground, from man to cattle to darting things and flying things of the heavens, for I am aggrieved that I made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is heavy stuff. The Lord saw the evil of man was great on the earth, and every imagining of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all day long. Do you ever look around the culture you are in and wonder if this is the worst it's ever been? I live in American culture, and I think... In our American church culture, we are prone to look out at the unchurched world we are living in and to make a judgment that this is the worst of humanity and never before has there been so much evil and moral decline. I think we're wrong. These verses here tell us every imagining thought of the hearts of men were evil all day long. The wickedness on earth is so bad. That God is aggrieved that he even created man. I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that the wickedness we see in our day and time is unrivaled. The New Testament is also full of examples of moral decline and terrible sins. Yes, our culture has turned its back on God. But that is nothing new. Humans have been rejecting God and committing atrocities since Genesis. So God declares he will wipe mankind. Or Remember our Hebrew word? He will wipe Adam from the Adamah. And not just Adam, but his other creations as well. Cattle, darting things, flying things, basically anything that needs air to breathe. And just a few chapters ago, God had declared all of this good. In fact, at the end of creation, he declared it all very good. And now it's become so polluted, so distorted, so wicked. He's willing to eliminate it all. Except for verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace. Now, the definition of grace I've always used is receiving a gift you do not deserve. The term used here is sometimes translated favor, and it's part of a Hebrew idiom, which means to be the object of another's favorable disposition or action or to find acceptance. Noah receives God's favor, his grace, and thus the story of the Ark will begin. But I want to make a point here that I think we often struggle with. I remember being in 10th grade English and we were put in small groups to discuss this question, are humans fundamentally good or fundamentally bad? And my group wrestled with this a bit, but we all ended up agreeing that humans are fundamentally good. We just sometimes make bad choices. Now, let's not forget, I was raised in church. I went to Wednesday night church, Sunday night church, summer camp, youth rallies, Sunday school, all of the church things. And at 15 years old, I did not understand this critical point. Humans are fundamentally bad, not good. And I think we have a hard time with this because by nature, we don't want to admit we have a problem. We want to see good and make excuses for the bad. And if we admit we're bad, we admit we need a savior. And 10th graders sitting in English class aren't generally going to come to that conclusion. But it's really clear from the pages of Genesis, isn't it? From Eve seeing the fruit, deciding it was good and taking it to Cain killing his brother out of jealousy and anger, to thousands or even millions of people on earth, and all of them so evil God is willing to wipe them all out, it's pretty clear. Humans are not fundamentally good. At our core, we're bad. It's called sin. In the Hebrew origin story, it is very, very clear that humans are bad. And that they are waiting for one who will come, the promised seed, and redeem them from the curse. So here, at this juncture, we see the Adamah filled with Adam. And there is none worth saving, except one. Noah. Noah finds favor. He finds grace. And in verse nine, we read, Noah was a righteous man. Perfect was he in his generation. With God, Noah walked. Now this verse gets translated all different ways, depending on your English Bible. It might say Noah was blameless, but don't get hung up on how the English describes Noah. He most certainly was not without sin. It's just that compared to his generation, Noah walked with God and he was comparatively quite different from his contemporaries. We will see the extent of Noah's imperfect humanness after the flood. But for now, what we see is a man who's seeking God and walking with him in relationship in the midst of a wicked culture. A culture so depraved, God is willing to wipe them all out, including his earth-dwelling creatures. My friends, the story of Noah is about so much more than animals marching on to a really big boat. It's one more piece in the narrative of looking for the promised seed. It's realizing the depths of mankind's wickedness and how our hearts are bad from the beginning. And yet, in his grace, in his amazing kindness and favor, he always preserves one so that his promise can be realized. Yes, the whole earth is wiped out in the flood, but God is faithful to the promise he made Eve. Did Eve get to see the promise herself? No, she did not. But nevertheless, the promised seed will come. God is good, man is not. God can be trusted to keep his promises. Man cannot save himself from the wickedness, but God will always make a way. I may not know what the Nephilim are, and I may not fully understand who the sons of God are in this context, and I might not fully understand everything I encounter in the Bible. And the same may be true for you. But this I know. God is good, and he can be trusted to keep his promises. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoy what you heard. Don't forget to leave a review and connect with us on Instagram. The Bible is for everyone.